Welcome to CCI Insights, a periodic podcast for CCI members from members, retain resources and staff. We hope you enjoy the latest episode. If you ever have any ideas for future content or people you'd like us to talk to, give us a shout out. Just contact one of the staff at CCIA. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. John Harsh, Eric Silva, welcome to CCI Insights, our new podcast for members, in a large part from members, but we also want to hear from our retained uh, experts, uh, such as you two at North-South Government Strategies. We appreciate all the work you guys are doing out there for us. Um, as you know, we, we want to talk a little bit about the business, but it's also an opportunity to get to know our guests uh, a little bit more. Uh, as well. So John, I know you're out, you've been out camped out in San Francisco for quite some time. Uh, and uh, your youngster Henley is, he's going to going on eight months old, isn't he? Or is it nine? He is uh, one week away from eight months. He okay. is standing up more and more on his own in his crib, which terrifies his parents and <laughs> is more fun than ever to play with on hikes and and, and walks around the neighborhood. But we're actually in Tahoe currently. Uh, we had an opportunity to uh, take over a house up here, as many other lobbyists have done. Uh, I've talked to people in Montana, in Texas, and one down in the country of Columbia. So I think many, most of us have escaped D.C. to uh, to work more efficiently and in, enjoy this time as best we can. Wow. Well, Tahoe... Uh is one of the most beautiful places on the planet as far as I'm concerned. Are you in the California or the Nevada side? California. We're right okay. by Squaw Valley Mountain. Okay. Nice. Nice. Well, good for you. You're, you're able to get out of the, uh, the smaller confines. Um, and Eric, how about you? I know, are, are you in D.C. still or have you been up uh, more in the home area? Yeah, I, I am in D.C. Harsh wouldn't let me leave, so um, somebody <laughs> had to hold down the fort. I uh, just right. came. Um, I have gotten out. I actually was up in up in New Hampshire with with my family uh, the last uh, few days. Just got back to D.C. Uh, last night. So OK, get, getting out when I can. OK. Any talk about uh, cars? I know you and I have talked about um, antique cars and uh, I know your dad's had a, a collection. Is he still is he still doing a lot of that or? He still is, although um, my my uh, my stepmother restrained uh the number of cars he could have based on the size of the garage they could have in their new newest house so he's downsized quite a bit he's upset about that uh but it's it's good for the purse um yeah the good news is i it meant that i inherited one of them here in dc so nice uh, at least i thought that was good news until i got it here and brought it to the mechanic a couple of times to get it running right and realized uh just how much money that cost to keep those those old cars going I think what, you know a thing, thing or two about that, Tom. A little bit. So what, what car is it, Eric? Uh, the car I have here is a 1962 Corvette. Oh, my. <laughs> ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Exactly. Christine, I will say, too. That is a beauty. Oh, that sounds great. She yeah, is beautiful, I, but she is expensive. Yeah, to, no to, kidding. To keep running. No kidding. Our, uh, a buddy of mine just drove by. The other day I was working uh, and I actually didn't hear it, but um, he drove by in like a 72 Thunderbird. And apparently it's a project car with his his uh, sons. <laughs> and apparently it needs some muffler work. So it's it's definitely a classic. But anyway, 
Well, thanks. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. Um, as we had discussed, there's a lot been going on. Uh, a lot's been going on out in the Beltway, uh, much of which is due to shifting priorities with the coronavirus and needing to help the nation respond to that. Uh, and then also just uh, recently, of course, uh, Joe Biden has named uh, Kamala Harris as a running mate. So that's pretty exciting. We thought it'd be good to get together and get your thoughts on, on looking ahead a little bit. So on the first one, um, the first topic is really this idea of uh, the relief or stimulus package. Um, Eric, what, I mean, what are the latest prospects? It, it's, it's looked dim. The, the latest I've seen is um, they're still apart on major issues. And in the meantime, the House is back, of course, to deal with the Postal Service. But what's the latest in your view? Yeah, um, dim, dim is, is, is a good description uh, of where <laughs> things have been. Um, I, I have been opting for stalemate um, as, as a description of what the, the conversations really are. Um, you know, we could go on and on and spend all of our time here about it, but mm-hmm. uh, I guess in a, in a couple of short um, comments, I'd say, you know, the, the line has been drawn in the sand about um, some priority issues. The House had passed their $3 trillion bill um, now uh, a couple months back, and unemployment insurance, funding for state and local governments, and frontline workers are um, their line in the sand. On the other hand, the Senate Republicans under, under McConnell have been focused on lowering that price tag to something closer to $1 trillion. can't believe we're, we're talking in trillions mm-hmm. these days, but we are. Uh, as well as liability protections for for companies reopening, uh, somewhere in the middle there there's a deal to be had. Uh, we just haven't found it yet. It's it's been elusive, uh, primarily on the numbers. And then there's a number of Senate Republican members who um, have unabashedly said that they don't think anything more is needed at this time uh, on the funding side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you see a leader McConnell trying to cobble together enough votes uh, to to come up with a deal. Uh, with that in mind, as you pointed out, uh, they have come back into session uh, on, a, on a pro forma basis this week, and there'll be a vote on Saturday uh, on the Postal Service uh, issue, which I'm sure all of our listeners are very familiar with what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new development is that today um, the Postmaster General uh, has moved to suspend any changes any further changes to the Postal Service uh, until after the election. So it seems that he's conceded the point that this has gotten political and, and that they will stop any of those activities. The Speaker has said that although she welcomes that, um, it's, it's not sufficient. They're going to take the vote on Saturday for $25 billion in additional funding. Um, why that matters is uh, what we might see is, might see, I say, and that has to do with um, some of the recent activity from the House Democratic Caucus that, that have written into the speaker and said that they want to see a vote on unemployment insurance extension as well. If you recall mm-hmm. last week, the president by executive order had extended unemployment benefits uh, for probably about five weeks based on the funding amount, uh, as well as payroll tax and a, a couple other items. Um, those are complicated, legally complicated, funding structure complicated as to whether the, the authorities are there and how they'll be delivered how the states are receiving that and how companies are receiving their role in it. Um, so the best, the best course of action really is legislation. Uh, and while Speaker Pelosi had been focused on getting an all or nothing sort of deal with the Senate on those line in the sand items, um, we may see some pressure to add unemployment insurance to the Postal Service vote uh, on Saturday, which would really change the broader dynamic. And, and for anybody to suggest that they know how that would change it, 
um, you know, I, I would say that they're just making things up. So we'll have to see how everything goes on a day by day basis, as we've been doing here for the last few weeks. And speaking of day by day, um, just, you know, just recently, again, um, this week, we have the, the announcement of uh, Kamala Harris. What oh, I remember, Eric, many, many months ago, actually, I think when, perhaps right after Biden announced he was running, I think you had said it's it's uh, right away. You said Biden Harris, uh, Biden Harris as the what, what do you think of Harris as a running mate? What's what's the latest out there? Yeah. So so what I think really doesn't matter. I've learned that by spending enough <laughs> years in Washington that my, that my my personal views um, seldom seem to be right. I, I, I will take credit for <laughs> I will take credit for calling out that that would be the ticket. Yes. Um, I thought that there are a lot of reasons why um, it should not necessarily be at the time. I'll mm-hmm. admit that. But I but I did have a sense that that would be the ticket. Um, I think for all the reasons that the, the Biden camp have already articulated um, um, pretty, pretty convincingly. The reason that I, I thought there were challenges was was not um, not a novel idea. There were many here in Washington who believed that um, Harris would have um, a tough time because one being from California has never been received very well um, on the national platform. Uh, but also uh, she she had a pro- she had a history um, a career as a prosecutor, uh, and uh, that that's a challenging position to have when running for uh, high office uh, and seeking the African American uh, vote. Um, but I think that what I've been reading out of the Biden campaign, what I've heard from friends who are on the campaign, is that uh, the spring really changed those dynamics quite a bit. Um, Black Lives Matter movement and um, and the reaction to it. Uh, they feel have showed that um, that Vice President uh, Harris will uh, will in fact uh, rise to the challenge uh, and has shown her real commitment uh, to racial equity in this in this country um, and and will not necessarily be treated as a former prosecutor in the the November election. So I think all around they're feeling good about it. I think we've seen a very good response to her. Um, but I'm sure, you know, John, you probably have some thoughts as well. Um, you can can add in. Thanks, Eric. Especially uh, in terms of our issues on all in APR and on uh, federal regulation of CCI member products. Um, we're pleased to see that, but that Harris is not anything close to an Elizabeth Warren. She's more liberal, generally speaking, on her voting record. But when it comes down to her priorities on uh, more on criminal justice reform, um, some on economic equity issues, uh, we're not seeing her as anywhere near as much of a uh, strong voice on products that or, or on on issues that could affect CCIA member products. Um, the last thing I want to say on on Harris here is that her her. Uh, reception at the Democratic National Convention and how how it's being portrayed in the national media uh, is, uh, I think, across uh, every every media outlet besides from OEN and other very far right groups is 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 positive thus far. We'll see if anything very negative or, or any October surprise comes out on on Harris, but she's viewed widely as as well vetted, unlike some of the other uh, last minute. Uh, final round uh, potential picks. And so 
uh, Biden made a safe choice here and made a choice of someone he, he already knows well. And so I, I'm not expecting any surprises or any, any surprise issues for our industry. It's good to know that, you know, Harris is more of a moderate. I had seen where um, Wall Street, for example, I think they expressed, um, you know, is it plaudits for the Harris choice? Uh, and then, John, as you pointed out, um, being more moderate than, uh, say, an Elizabeth Warren could be helpful just from a, um, an industry perspective. Um, what do you think of the um, shifting over to virtual conventions? Um, I, I actually honestly didn't catch anything last night. I just read the updates on it. Uh, and I know you two were probably slated to go to Milwaukee originally. Uh, what, what are you hearing on kind of the efficacy of those, John? And how might, how might those change going forward? Yeah, the hotel rooms we had were, were pricey. So at least <laughs> we didn't have to uh, have that sunk cost. But I'm, I'm sad we weren't in Milwaukee. It's yeah. a phenomenal city. It would have been a wonderful convention. It may have uh, rivaled Denver uh, in 2008, which is still my, my favorite Democratic National Convention. In terms of this being a, a digital convention, I watched every detail last night and also the commentary surrounding it. I think it's been very well received publicly. I think their balance between having speeches and having having very genuine comments from average Americans around the country is something that isn't done very well in person when you have this big room and, and delegates aren't really paying attention unless it's a big name, whereas it's on TV. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, they wait, the way they, they cut to people's living rooms, and they showed people of all different ages and races and, and, and classes, uh, economically speaking, I, I think it's, it's setting a new standard. And I, I don't see us going back on, in either party to the normal convention af- after this model. Um, though I will say it's, it's easy with this model to, to paper over any subversion or disagreements. Uh, there are no Bernie chants you'd hear from the mm-hmm, floor mm-hmm. like there were in 2008 right, for him. Right. So it's easier to make sure everyone publicly looks aligned, even though uh, some, some Bernie supporters or Warren supporters may still not be. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I would add to that a, a, an interesting dynamic. I agree with all of what John said in terms of how this, much like we've seen in, in all of our professional lives, um, is going to accelerate you know, how we change these conventions in the future um, and, and the mode and means by which, by which we all um, receive the information and the speeches. But the one thing that I would say is missing um, is, is kind of the flip side of that same coin much of what happens at a convention happens behind um, the screen, if you, if you will. Uh, and that is the convening of delegates from around the country, members of Congress. Yes, us lobbyists are there too. Um, all sorts of interest groups, um, probably interest groups, not, not just those that you disagree with, but those that you do agree with. Um, and there's a real opportunity every four years um, for all of these people to come together and um, to have dialogue, informal and formal alike. Um, there are speeches, there are panels, uh, there are many conferences that go on, um, and then there are cocktails and dinners uh, and, and events. Uh, and, and those really um, tend to help create a unity or a sense of unity um, among, among people who are there to see that uh, whether they're progressive or moderate, 
that they all fit within this platform and framework uh, and creates that kind of last push for a couple months of campaigning of, of one team uh, focus. Now, I will say, I, I think that we've seen we've seen that um, emerge around the platform issues that John can can probably speak to uh, on this uh, with our time here. Uh, but but I think the, the kind of real human sense of that, uh, of of we can get along even if we're far apart on on policy is lost in not having a, an in-person convention. So we're going to be talking with the Federal Affairs Committee uh, tomorrow, actually, I believe. And I know some of this is a little bit of a repeat, but not everyone in CCIA, the members, uh, participate in that committee. Uh, Tomorrow we'll be talking about the election results, what what Congress might look like. Uh, What's your view uh, on that, Eric? What's your best estimate? Oh, so I I like being one for one on the VP (laughs) pick. If you're going to set me up to be one for one, one I'm sorry, one, one and oh, you're going to set me up to be one and one, then uh, all right, Tom. Uh, so my best guess is, uh, and, and I know that a number of our members are not going to want to hear this, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm strictly going on the math here uh, as, as is emerging. And, and the caveat is um, I am still trusting um, polls, maybe not mm-hmm. individual polls, but aggregating polls. Uh, and maybe 2016 taught us that we shouldn't trust them so much, but I think we are in different times. Without getting into analysis of the fundamentals and methodology of polls, just just caveat that I'm trusting them, I think we're looking at a three for three, mm. and that is um, that the House stays in Democrat control, but, but marginal increases in numbers. Um, Senate goes Democrat, and the White House goes Biden-Harris. Uh, I think that that's our the best chance. Now, I am not saying that that's that's an absolute written in stone. Um, in addition to to us having to um, give serious pause to how much credibility we give to to the polls that are out there, we right. should also note that there's a lot of time between now and then, um, and things can happen um, and can turn that dynamic around. Uh, the second best uh, uh, guess, uh, which would be my second scenario, would be two out of three. Um, it's hard to see um, how uh, that two out of three would be um, a Trump presidency and the Senate remain and then the Senate going Democrat because typically down ticket has more of an impact uh, than up ticket. So I would say that two out of three would be a Biden presidency, but somehow the Senate stays in the Republican hands. I, I don't I don't uh, foresee that, but I'm, I'm saying I think that's the second scenario. Gotcha. So, um, you know, that. That lends to the conversation we're going to have tomorrow about the impact that that'll have on on policy issues. Right, right. I agree. And uh, Tom, let me add some color here. I last week spoke to one Republican senior senator and one senior Democratic senator, and they agreed on two of the three. Both agreed and both said White House looks most likely like it's going Biden. And both agreed House no question, 100% staying Democratic. There may actually be five to 10 seats gained by Democrats in the House. And that's a whole other interesting dynamic since it changes a few committee uh, a, a com- committee uh, ratios. 
but they they didn't agree on the Senate, and that's that's the big question for us. Does the Senate go Democratic? And if it does, does that mean there are fifty or more Democrats that would vote for a rate cap bill, an MLA for all bill? Um, that is the question that we're fo- focused very closely on. I don't think, as of right now, there will be uh, enough senators to even uh, move past a cloture vote. And I don't think there will be enough to get to six, but it's still uh, an open question. So we'll get in. Thank you both. We'll, we'll get into more specific policy issues tomorrow and, fr- you know, frame up our legislative priorities for uh, on the federal side. What do you think of the filibuster? What's going to happen to that? Any thoughts there? McConnell and Schumer have both said various times in in the last two years, they do not plan to to change the 60 vote threshold. Um, to They would allow that a filibuster uh, is still a way to to in a gentlemanly way keep keep the Senate uh, in a very different uh, ratio than the House where majority civil majority rules. Right. right. Yeah, I, I agree. I would just I would just say, you know, as as someone who did work in the Senate uh, many years ago, um, it really is the DNA of the Senate. It's what makes it and distinguishes it from from the House. Uh, the notion that it's not a 51 vote uh, majority body and that to do th- some fundamental changes, um, you need to get over that 60 vote threshold. It, it forces or has historically forced uh, much more consensus, um, better negotiations and the um, built in again to the DNA that senators understand when they come in there that, that making friends with colleagues across the aisle is almost essential if you want to um, have a long and successful career in the Senate. Um, so there's a lot of talk about them abandoning that as um, the final gasp. Um, I don't see it happening. I don't think either one of the leaders want that to happen. Um, and I, I think that the body as a whole understands that it's in its interest not to just become um, another 51 vote uh, or another majority vote body. That's right. And th- this is this is not even a, a chess game level of complexity here. It's, it's it's checkers. If McConnell has an opportunity to move a Supreme Court justice uh, before January and he does so, then Schumer, I think, is much more likely to say all bets are off. We're going nuclear. We're going to 51. Mm-hmm. Okay. McConnell knows that. So I think I think he, he will not. It, let's say we do have a Supreme Court vacancy. I don't think McConnell moves. Uh, for a vote on a replacement and in not doing so i think schumer sticks to the 60 vote threshold okay interesting well in the the materials for our federal affairs committee i did add the word the filibuster is potentially eliminated so that that's really great to get that type of background um, information especially again for members that may not be able to make the meeting or don't necessarily participate uh, in uh, the Federal Affairs Committee on an ongoing basis. Our time is already up, gents. Um, we are really appreciate your 
making time available. I know you're both really, really busy. Uh, I know the your lobbying efforts now have gone completely virtual with phone call after phone call. I'm sure text messaging and emails has not slowed down uh, either. Appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, talk a little bit about you know what you're what you're seeing, especially with the latest news. And there's a lot going on in the Beltway uh, from the election to you know responding again to the to coronavirus and COVID-19. So we appreciate the work that you do and, and the time this afternoon, guys. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, thanks again. Thanks for having us, Tom. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the CCIA Insights podcast. Again, if you have ideas, please send them our way and be sure to share this with your team. Thank you.